0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sanjukta Poddar, the host of the channel, and I'm an assistant professor in the Institute of Asian Studies at Leiden University. Today, we are in conversation with Dr. Divya Cherian about her new book, Merchants of Virtue, Hindus, Muslims, and Untouchables in eighteenth-century South Asia. Divya cherian is assistant professor in the Department of History at Princeton University. Divya, welcome to the show. Um, Divya, I wonder if you we could begin the interview, uh, the book discussion, uh, by if you could tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become interested in research and scholarship, and uh, or you know, what's the journey to? To becoming an academic,
0: sure. Um, so, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Sanjukta, for having me uh, featured in your podcast series here with the New Books Network, and you know, huge thanks to the New Books Network for existing. I think it's a really exciting, um, you know, platform that's doing an important service to the field, uh, but also to the broader public um, in terms of communicating new scholarly work to a wider audience. So, you know, thank you to the institution and thank you to you. So in terms of, um, yeah, my journey to how I became um, a scholar, I think it was bit by bit. Honestly, I think as an undergraduate student, I certainly you came to appreciate history. I, I majored in history. I mean, I studied in India. I did uh, all my education um, until something called an MPhil, which is a research degree, a postgraduate, postmaster's research degree uh, that used to exist in India and was very recently actually um, sort of cancelled by the University Grants Commission over there. So until my MPhil, I studied in India. But I would say that as an undergraduate, when I majored in history, it was sort of just, you know, a choice I made without too much reflection. Um, and there were some papers that really kind of opened up my eyes to the potential, potential that history has as a discipline and how interesting and exciting it can be. Uh, but there were others that were really not that great, honestly, and you know, and the kind of mode of I think you also are a Delhi University. In fact, I think we might have gone to the same college. Um, the way in which at least history undergraduates were assessed during my time was through the re, through the answering of these sort of four questions at the end of the academic year you know so the way in which many students prepared for these exams was literally by memorizing other students answers to an expected you know assortment of questions uh, there were these so-called tutorial essays that were in circulation, um, in Delhi University, and uh, honestly, it was a, it was a soul-crushing system. I hated it, and uh, y- you know, um, and even the idea of a single exam at the end of the year that determines your grades for that class for the entire year—it just seems like a system, you know, designed to crush souls. So I wasn't a huge fan of history then. However, and this I've shared in maybe other fora as well, I think growing up in Delhi really oriented me towards um, pre-modern, pre-colonial history. I grew up in the neighborhood of Saket, which is right in uh, old Delhi Sultanate um, spaces like Chiragdilli, uh, Mehroli um, uh, and, you know, even just the school bus ride that I would take every day would wind its way past different ruins. It was literally like a journey through India's past, starting out in the Delhi Sultanate, making its way through, you know, past Lodi monuments. I mean, of course, there were some Mughal monuments also um, in, in Mehroli. So um, I didn't know all this at the time. I was just aware that, you know, from a very young age, you know, in my walks around the neighborhood, that there are these like weird and interesting buildings. And it was really, I think, in class seven or eight that we studied about the Delhi Sultanate for the first time. And I was just like, oh, my gosh, this is mind blowing. This is what these buildings are like. These are the people who built them. These were the societies that inhabited them, you know. So I think that was truly a spark for me—the mix of living within these ruins and then learning about them later. Um, And I think for that reason, I really enjoyed my uh, the history uh, class I did in the undergraduate years on the Delhi Sultanate and sort of what was at the—I guess it was late medieval. Um, South Asia. So anyway, so I then applied for a master's in Indian history at Jawaharlal Nehru University, which is where I would say I think I truly came to love the subject. And that I think had to do with the instruction. Because of course, we had classes, but there was a lot more emphasis on internal assessment, you know, like choosing topics and really doing the historiographical work yourself, uh, first of all, and then in the last semester, we got to write our own research papers which is something that in America people already often do at the undergraduate level but for us at least how it was designed we only got to do this at the very end of our masters degree and that is when i think you know it was one of those eye opening moments when i was like oh my goodness you can really ask any question and frame your your research and You know, really, it doesn't have to be the old topics of, you know, the tax and revenue system and, you know, which we'd studied again and again and again. Not that those are not important, but there had been kind of a repetitive quality to how many times we studied those topics. Um, And so that, I think, combined with the particular debates that were ongoing in, in Jawaharlal Nehru University, um, you know, I became very close to um, anti-caste activists on campus uh, who really opened up my eyes. I was also involved in the students movement in JNU. Um, I was part of uh, a political organization. I, uh, you know, we, we waged struggles on questions of, you know, student scholarships, um, hostel rooms, Um, But also these were struggles that linked kind of the very particular demands of students on campus with national and global level questions, which are things people sometimes mock about, you know, JNU students with their cloth jholas, you know, thinking they were to change the world. But I I do think it was important to think at every scale and to also see the interconnections between the different uh, scales in the moment. So I think that mix of kind of the, the questions that were emerging out of the student movement, and looking through that lens onto history, uh, I think, pointed me to the particular types of questions I wanted to ask. And among those, I think the question of the history of caste before colonialism is really what emerged to me as one that I couldn't see a good answer to at that time. And we are talking uh, about, you know, 2004. So, yeah, this book has been in the making. <laughs> but yeah, that's my journey.
1: Okay, that's fascinating. Uh, And I think you've already uh, kind of uh, created a nice segue to the next question I have, because I'm curious to know how you chose this particular project that focuses on uh, Marwar in the 18th century, uh, which then ultimately led to this fascinating award-winning book uh, that we are discussing today. And uh, since many of the members of our audience uh, already conduct or wish to conduct research involving non-English sources, including myself, uh, I'm wondering if you could perhaps share your journey of learning to read early modern Rajasthani archives. Uh, I really enjoyed the many citations from the original edicts and orders, uh, which you very generously translate into English with diacritics, and uh, you even reproduce photographs of the records of the Bahis uh, in the book. So um, perhaps, you know, a little bit about your project, how you reached, um, how, you know, your journey towards the project, and uh, a little bit about your uh, uh, learning the languages of
0: the archives that you work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So I think for me, um, you know, I did give a sense of how I came to this question of caste. Um, But uh, when I think about it from the sense of the curriculum, you know, like I said, there were these, um, you know, very urgent discussions about caste and kind of silences about um, uh, anti-caste sort of justice among some of the progressive Uh, movements on campus. I mean, nobody who was progressive would deny that there was a need to fight caste, but how do we do it? When do we do it? How much prominence does the anti-caste agenda have in kind of the vocabulary of the student movement? I think that looked quite different uh, when I joined Nehru University in 2004. So as I came to you know think uh, reflexively about that question, it so happened I also took a class with the historian Tanika Sarkar, who, which was a class on modern um, colonial India, in which she it was about caste, gender, and labour. So again, coming from that very, you know, that fixed Delhi University curriculum in which we studied, again, these are important debates. But, you know, there was a lot of emphasis on the history of the anti-colonial movement, on nationalism, um, on sort of questions of economic history. Um, I just felt that, you know, the question of caste, um, you know, even, even in modern India had not at least been part of that curriculum, studies may have existed but they perhaps were slow to be added to the sort of mainstream curriculum so this class really opened up my eyes again you know I was like oh wow so there's all this exciting work on colonial India you know So, that um, I think encouraged me to take a class on village society uh, in pre colonial India. And I was on the pre colonial, so called medieval, early modern India track in JNU. Um, And there I was so excited. I was like, okay, this class on like village relations is going to be the class where I'm going to learn about caste. So, caste was discussed, but the framework of that class was much more along land relations, um, sort of tenancy relations, tax relations, uh, you know, the ownership of. the means of production such as wells and plows and such like, which are very important to the operation of caste. Let me make that very clear. I didn't see any discussion of uh, questions of touchability, untouchability, uh, the, you know, what role, if any, does ritual play? What, you know, the, the sort of the word caste seemed to get blurred into the background, you know. Um, so that question remained very much uh, in my mind, even as that class certainly served as an important foundation for me to pivot to the questions um, I later pivoted to. But I think when it came time for me to pick my own research paper, I said, well, this is what I really want to know. Um, and so then came the question of, well, which part of South Asia and where and how to, to study, you know, this question. Um, and there, I think the advice and guidance of my professors at JNU, uh, such as Professor Najaf Heather. Um, Professor Rajat Datta, who has uh, sadly passed away since, um, they said, you know, he, there is actually a lot of rich material on uh, either Rajasthan, many kingdoms in Rajasthan, or the Peshwar ruled Deccan. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of on the fence, and that is when kind of life intervened, when they happened to hire Professor Nandita Prasad Sahai, who also sadly has since passed away, who is a historian of Marwar. So I think her presence and her kind of like even like logistical knowledge of like, how do you get to Rajasthan? Where do you go? What's it like as a woman researcher? You know, all of these things were helpful. Plus, I felt that there had been some research based out of the Maratha sources and on the Peshwara Deccan, generally much more. So this took me to Rajasthan and I found myself on the Avadh Assam Express, which is a train that goes from Old Delhi Railway Station, comes all the way from Assam, goes all the way to Bikaner. And, uh, you know, I I disembarked in Bikaner. And I would say that, yes, you know, suddenly saw myself looking at these crawled lines, these endless lines, which had no gaps between words. I'm not a native speaker of Marwadi. You know, I'm like, oh my goodness. But again, maybe having that role model of somebody like Nandita Sahai, even Professor Dilbag Singh in JNU, who had worked with more with the Jaipur Records. These are also people who didn't grow up speaking Rajasthani. So I was like, okay, this has been done. I can do this, you know. So yeah, how did I learn the language, I I sat, uh, really, I just first they gave me this chart, okay, which had how what each letter, like the letter in the pre modern script, how it corresponds to modern Devnagri like, you know, typed out script. So this chart was with me, but really, it was not very helpful. Because you know, once you combine the letters, they look different, they don't look just as they do when you separate them in, in this script. So still, it was something. So I remember kind of triangulating between the chart, the the bahi, you know, the, the written record and my blank page. And I think I just literally began copying out um, the what I saw. And I think then revisiting what I saw with what was in the chart. Uh, combined with, you know, the foundation of speaking fluent Hindi, there is a grammatical uh, commonality between Marwadi and Hindi. You know, some words are also common. Slowly, slowly, you know, the scribbles and scrolls started to make sense. Here, I should also acknowledge the kind of the service done by uh, a gentleman called uh, Shri Punam Chand uh, Joya, whom we call Joya Ji. Who was uh, who worked um, in the in the in the archives? He had an administrative role in the archives, but he just genuinely enjoyed reading these bahis. So he was kind of you know busy doing his work, but he was available kind of as a points person. So he could not sit and literally just read with us for hours or something like that. But he sort of set us off, and I say us because I'm not the only one. There have been so many of us who went at uh, that I know of, who went from Delhi, and he treated us all with equal. Um, sort of, you know, welcome and made time, so he could always be turned to for a quick, like, what is this? Am I reading this correct? You know. So I remember sitting him sitting in his office, clearing papers, but he was always available. So, so his presence there, I think, was really encouraging. Um, and that's it. So I, I, I think there's copying, copying, copying. It started in my actually in my MPhil in the last year of my MPhil um, when I actually sat down and wrote, researched and wrote my MPhil. Until then, it was all you know plans in the air um that i got that initial like slow moving experience then i went back for a couple of summers during the first years of my phd program and then that's it i descended and moved to Bikaner, really just like you know made it my home i think that was an important part of the kind of research i have done is to really just live in the town where this archives is and that again you know was perhaps a product of Uh, circumstances in that this is an archive that uh, did not permit any photography, did not facilitate scanning or photocopying of these documents on the grounds that they are old and fragile at that time, and certainly not for like individuals. In subsequent years, they have gotten very large grants. Actually, Um, the director of the archive, uh, Dr. Mahindra Singh Khargavat, has done a lot of work um, to to digitize like almost all of the pre-colonial archive. But at that time, that digitization was not it was ongoing. I mean, it may have started when I was there. I don't remember. So the only option a person had was to mm-hmm. literally sit and hand copy um, this archive or whatever you needed. You could type it out. If you could type quickly in the or you hand copied it. Now, I wrote much faster than I typed in Hindi. Um, so I hand copied on these index cards, okay, which was also a research suggestion made by Joya ji, which was very helpful. And um, and and that's it. And, and you know, I, I joke that I turned into this year into a, a pre-modern scribe myself because I literally was. <laughs> but the good but the thing was, and, you know, this is what I've heard other historians say as well, is that I did not come after a quick stint with like thousands and thousands of pictures in a script that I would not have been as fluent in. So sitting there day after day, kind of, I said, I sometimes say I treated it like an office job. I would be there when the archive opened and I would leave when it closed that I would just, um, you know, I I became very fluent at the script. By the end of this time, I could read it like, you know, we read English or Hindi. uh, But, you know, especially, you know, when you I could scan a page very quickly and see, okay, this is the rough without having to read every word, you know, like this is what this document is about. Um, And uh, and that's it. And it was like thousands of pages, you know. Uh, So I think slowly, slowly, bit by bit, it was like climbing a mountain. I made my way to the to the end of this very voluminous record series, but it took that kind of time, that daily time living in Bikaner, um, and um, you know, just just not giving up. I would say, and I would say, in terms of the fluency with the script, given my foundation in Hindi, it probably took me two months to start reading it pretty reasonably, reasonably fast. So anyone can do it. I wouldn't even say this is some great achievement. I think unfortunately, few people want to do it. If people wanted to do it, it would, it's not at all difficult, you know. Yeah,
1: thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Because uh, of course, as you both of us uh, who have done our PhDs in US universities know, there is a lot of scope to um, and support uh, in terms of funding to learn languages, but often um, students in Indian universities or universities across the world don't always have that support, and they struggle. So they often then end up working in archives that they are might, uh, they might already know the language of. Um, so it's really uh, inspiring to hear that uh, you 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 are self-taught uh, in and uh, you know you were really thrown into the deep. And and you started swimming uh, and thanks for sharing uh, with the audience uh, this snippet of how of how rigorous your engagement with the archives uh, was so I think and that rigor shows I must say that whoever reads your book they'll see that rigor so now I'll turn perhaps to the book itself. And, uh, you know, I'll just, uh, those who may not have read the book yet, uh, it's divided into two sections. And I found uh, that, uh, you know, I, I have to mention that I found the elegant organizational logic riveting. The two parts are called Other and Self. So, Other first and Self then. And each chapter has a monosyllabic title Power, Purity, Hierarchy, Discipline, Non Harm, Austerity, and Chastity, which relate to the Uh, quote-unquote virtues that are practiced uh, by the Rathor state and its merchant bureaucrats, so I won't anticipate the argument beyond this. Um, So maybe you could, uh, before we delve into these individual chapters, you could explain this bipartite structure of the book, um, how how you chose these particular virtues, and I guess I'm asking you to reflect uh, or share the, the main argument of your work with reference to the this very fascinating structure. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
0: Yeah, I mean, so I think this was the kind of, um, like the organizational structure really came to me um, in the revision process from dissertation to book. And I realized that, you know, there is something about the deployment of um, virtue, you know, of, of kind of moral, ethical, um, self-fashioning and positioning, and also kind of um, uh, an expectation, kind of a uh, encouragement of others to be virtuous. Similarly, that is playing an important role in the dynamics that I trace in the book. And so when I reorganized the book, when I rethought the dissertation into a book, I felt that I wanted the organization itself to reflect those, um, you know, the, the, the argument of the book. And in fact, it was pretty late in the revision process when I suddenly realized that actually, perhaps without even knowing it, there are virtues at play in each chapter, you know, uh, pretty much, except for kind of maybe the first one, which lays out some of the background of, of the, of the you know, the the argument. And so I realized, well, you know, even the table of contents can therefore... Uh, make a case for the argument itself. Uh, so it was a, it was a very slow process. I think I still remember it was during the pandemic. The world was shut down. We were isolating, and I think in my as I was waking up, pre waking up, you know, right before waking up, this idea came to my mind. I'm like, so that's how the uh, the kind of the kind of the single word titles of, uh, of a week chapters came into being. But as for the central argument of the book, in it I argue or I show that the merchants of this Western Indian kingdom uh, of Marwar uh, mobilized the tremendous gains that they had made uh, in terms of wealth, but most importantly for this region in terms of their uh, leadership positions and their uh, participation in the administrative structure of the state. They, They mobilized these two things in order to engineer Uh, a shift in the region's caste order. So not only did they seek to engineer a shift of their own status into being counted among the most elite groups within the caste order, but to also remake the logic underlying the region's caste order. So what I mean to say here is that, you know, Rajputs in particular, that's the landed warrior elites, enjoyed a deep hold upon, you know, being kind of the most elite group in this region, which stemmed from, uh, you know, 9th, 10th, 12th centuries, uh, the deep emergence of this Rajput caste, you know, that BD Chattopadhyay has shown quite well, others have also shown. And so it's like, from Many many centuries, this kind of the not just the political and temporal hold that Rajputs have over land, but there's also an ideology of Rajput blood, Rajput valor, the Rajput body, you know, that, that un- underpins the the very high status that Rajputs had brahmin's just across south asia you know due to their resource um that lay in the ideology of you know brahmanical purity brahmanical ritual uh, brahmanical learnedness you know that they had a certain claim also upon kind of the, being the most elite however in this region they didn't have that kind of economic basis to high brahmanical status that we see in peninsular india where again since the medieval Period, you have these large temple complexes, kind of an economic basis as well to Brahmin dominance that we don't have in the Rajasthan region. But there is this other claim that Brahmins do have. Now, merchants' claim to being among the very topmost would come out of their command over money. And that unfortunately doesn't really have a place um, in terms of kind of an ideological basis <clears throat> for elite caste rank so money couldn't really be a basis for asserting kind of you know inclusion among the region's most elite uh, that the merchants were seeking and that they had in you know, a in a sense achieved through the kind of power economic and political that they had so i argue that they instead um, mobilized um, mercantile virtues mercantile ethics um, as the foundation for their inclusion among the region's uh, most elite. So, of course, there, there were ways in which they replicated kind of Brahminical caste purity, uh, you know, which is by asserting separations, segregations, much in the same way as as Brahmins would from those who were deemed lowly, uh, which included artisans and such like who were called the Poonjaat or they were also called uh, Kameen or Kameena, right? But it also uh, included uh, separations from another demographic, which was uh, classed as a achep or untouchable. And here, again, other than kind of older and more recognizable or sometimes unspecified ideas of, you know, we need distance from them because it is against our ethic or our dharma or it's uh, against our prestige or marjad, Um, So there would be that kind of vague reference to, you know, caste rank. But um, there would sometimes be a reference to the fact that these people are uh, meat eaters or they, that is they harm. So it was not a literal reference to meat eating, but that they harm animals. So this idea of Jeev Hansya, which is the term used in these records for violence upon a living beings, specifically non-human animals, Um, That was mobilized in their petitions in a range of orders um, from this state uh, as well. A state that is overwhelmingly manned by merchants, uh, citing um, violence against animals as grounds for the uh, deeming of some people as inherently criminal. And these same inherently criminal people are explicitly listed in other orders uh, as being among the untouchable. So, I argue that there was an addition of vegetarianism, not coming out of the more commonly understood Brahminical origins of vegetarianism, but coming from a Vaishnav Jain mercantile adherence to to vegetarianism uh, that is mobilized in this kingdom and takes on the power that it does. So, it's not just the kind of vegetarian Vaishnav king who is a Rajput, who due to his adherence and his formal initiation into a Vaishnavite order, it's not just that he issues this command and lo and behold, suddenly the state is running around trying to implement it. But we really see a diffuse and wide-ranging phenomenon in this kingdom in the latter half of the 18th century. Where the state's functionaries genuinely go on the ground and dock people, fine people, uh, uh, arrest people, uh, and in the case of the, the some of these so-called untouchable groups, that is the Thoris and Bavaris who are today uh, a a scheduled tribe, uh, and also butchers, most of whom are Muslim, uh, and Muslims in general, are singled out for much harsher punishment and even expulsion from the kingdom, not just as an order, but genuinely multiple efforts are made to remove them from the body politic. So this uh, addition of uh, of vegetarianism and the fact that it plays out as a diffuse phenomenon and not just a top-down state order, I suggest, is due to the mercantile uh, presence and mercantile efforts at remaking Hindu ness in this kingdom, where Hindu ness, which I suggest is a elite caste identity in this period, uh, comes to be associated with not just older ideas of caste purity, but specifically also um, vegetarianism. And so to really go to the heart of my argument, what I say is that in the 18th century, in parts of India, specifically in this Western Indian kingdom of Marwar, we see the articulation of a Hindu identity named as such by certain elite caste groups, which is an exclusive uh, identity that is defined not in opposition to the Muslim, as perhaps we would expect, but rather in opposition to the untouchable, of whom the Muslim is imagined as being a part. So the Muslim and the untouchable kind of inform each other, but it is that untouchable status that is elevated to a position of dyadic otherness, to Hinduness in this period. And so I suggest that when we look at pre-modern social identities, we need to pay not attention only to the Hindu-Muslim dynamic, whether we seek whether it is fluidity we see, whether it is a shared culture we see, but we need to understand that Hindu ness and Muslimness in South Asia cannot be understand understood without attention to caste.
1: Thank you. Yeah, that's that's such an compelling argument, and I think it's uh, very important to um, to emphasize again that what you're showing us through your work is that there is a clear Hindu identity that is um, that is forming at that. This period, which defines itself against the not just the Muslim, but against the lower caste communities, and in that sense, they are the so-called untouchable communities, and to some degree, even artisanal communities, along with the Muslims, are not part of the Hindu social body and the Hindu um, uh, uh, state uh, uh, that is being defined at this period. Um, so that that's that's fascinating. Um, so I think this just makes the audience more curious to hear about the contents of the book uh, could you tell us about the category of power that you use to organize chapter one, whose power what kind of power uh, are you highlighting here and of course uh, since you know you explained the argument uh, there is a oppositional uh, situation here where some categories have to be marginalized in order to, for uh, elite communities to define themselves as elite, uh, both in social status and in uh, caste status? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I think um, really the, the chapter that is called Power, for me, it was meant to give a historical account for how it is that some of the principal actors engaged that are catalysts in the remaking of the caste order, or in the articulation of this particular kind of Hindu identity, and not just the articulation, but the implementation of it through the state's law, who are these actors, and how did they come to have the power that they, that they deploy? Um. So, uh, and I wanted for it, for it to be clear, up. and actually, you know, in a way, it is a uh, justification of the use of the term early modern, right, that I use not in the title of the book, but I definitely use it um, in you know all through the book. So without going into sort of the history of how this term early modern came to be associated or applied to the study of South Asia, um, you know, many of the things we see happening in this latter half of the 18th century, which is the heart of what, what my book shows, none of this would have been possible if not for long-term historical changes, many of which curiously actually start to unfold, or there are major shifts in those histories around the 16th century. So in unpacking power, I, I really focus on the Rajput king, who is, as I said, he does play an important role in making possible some of these changes due to his Vaishnav affiliation, but due also to some of the political challenges that he is facing to his power within Marwar. So one is the history of that king, but also the dynasty that he comes from in the regional political order of Marwar. The other is a a history of how did the merchants come to have the power that they do? So merchants as a category more broadly, but how did these Vaishnav and Jain merchants of Marwar come to have the kind of economic power that they had? What was the nature of the economic power that they had? And what was the nature of the political power that they wielded? Because I thought it was easy for me to simply say, well, they're part of the state. I really wanted to show just how much they were a part of the state from the top to the bottom in terms of the administrative structure of the Rathor kingdom by the 18th century. So I show some of that. And thirdly, I think one of my goals was to really unpack this category state as we use it uh, for early modern South Asia. And I think I was also invested in using the term state uh, not just a uh, court that is often used, you know, for, for early modern South Asia. Uh, I feel that the term state encapsulates a certain power relation uh, that I wanted to highlight. Um, you know, it is not just a site of you know, cultural production and sort of ethical uh, directives, which it is certainly, but I think for me, the term state carries this other valence of uh, political economic relations that undergird it. I wanted to unpack the state and I wanted to move beyond the king. I wanted to move beyond his nobles and kind of an older landed aristocracy. I also wanted to undo the association that people often have of Rajasthan with Rajputs, that the state in Rajasthan are the warrior elites of these Rajputs who have been ruling since the late medieval period or even the early medieval period. So, I wanted to show that actually, no, this is a very dynamic entity and here is what the anatomy of the state looks like. And there I also make a reference to the concubine of Maharaja Vijay Singh, whose name is Gulab Rai or whose name was Gulab Rai. Or that was a name that was given to her when she was incorporated into Maharaja Vijay Singh's um, household. How she is actually also playing a political role, which we can't fully a trace because she hasn't left that kind of imprint in the everyday records that I look at, but she definitely had a role in favoring certain merchant caste men to the position of, you know, prime minister of the kingdom. She seems to be a real player in the politics, which had consequences on the ground as well. So I couldn't fully show what she's doing really on the ground, but I wanted to make clear there is also this actor that is an important actor in, in the period that I am looking at. So that broadly is kind of the zone, you know, power is of course a, a, a large category and there were different ways in which it was enacted by different actors. But here really it was to show the people who are using that power to remake the caste order.
1: And there's also transition in the nature of power that is being exercised that you show, right? Uh, With the uh, with the upward mobility that the mercantile castes are seeking, they you you show how they integrate themselves into. Uh, domains that they didn't have prior presence in, or didn't have this dominant presence, like the bureaucracy, uh, and and they become really the right and left hand of the of Maharaja Vijay Singh. And um, I, you know, I, it does seem that the courtesan uh, Gulab Rai. I mean, I'm wondering whether you can conjecture that probably she herself belonged to either a Vaishnava community or perhaps. Uh, mercantile caste perhaps that's as you said it's not available that kind of evidence to make that kind of conjecture but um, it's it's interesting why she would uh, favor uh, certain people from certain castes in their request for upward mobility
0: yeah I mean in in response to that I would say that I think it wasn't that she that she could have singled out merchant caste men that there was just a large pool of merchant caste men who were very active and who had the skill set, sometimes the family legacy of working for this kingdom. So it wasn't that she chose merchants from among other caste options. She may have likely just chosen another merchant caste officer as being like her ally at court. But she was part of that dynamic is what I would say. In terms of her own caste origin uh i think it's unlikely that she was of mercantile caste origin but as you say it is possible we don't know you know in the in the circumstances of this time period children were sold in at a very young age into slavery in times of distress parents did that during famines and such like so it's very possible that maybe even a, a mercantile family could have <clears throat> faced that kind of circumstance and in fact it would have been embarrassing perhaps for merc- mercantile uh, caste fellows to Admit that this this was formerly uh, a woman of their caste who was now um, in the status of a concubine, but <laughs> historians say that it's more likely that she was <coughs> of a Jat origin. We don't know. Actually, we don't know. She could have been any any caste origin. It's completely erased. Yeah, and 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 that kind
1: of you know interesting mobility that you see in this middle class, I think that's and their um, their ability to move up in the hierarchy in order to entrench themselves in the power structure. That's that's fascinating. And here we also have a female figure, which is often rare. Uh, So maybe we can turn to chapter two here, uh, where the ethic of purity is the focal lens through which you read the Marwar state. And here we find the figure of the Achep and the Turk, which I'll let you explain to the readers as the target of many of the Marwar state edicts and legislations. So could you tell us more about um, Mm -hmm. this ethic of of purity, this virtue, quote-unquote, virtue of purity?
0: Yeah, I think here I just wanted to lay out um, in this chapter mm. sort of all the many ways in which um, mercantile actors, but often working in alliance with <clears throat> um, um you know, neighbors and, and townspeople or village uh, people, sometimes also Jat communities, uh, how they would sometimes join and kind of work together with Mahajans. Sometimes the Mahajans would work on their own. I really wanted to map out kind of the the axes along which the remaking of social life played out. So I use this term social distance here. I'm not saying it's very original. But the funny thing is I started to use it well before the pandemic. It was sort of interesting for me. That's interesting to know. I was wondering whether that's uh, that's something oh. that came up when you were revising during the pandemic. What was so funny was I was already using the term and I was deep in my revisions. I, I don't remember if I used this in my dissertation, but certainly I was deep in my revisions. When the pandemic happened, and I was like, when they started to use social distance to describe what we should be doing to avoid the contagion of coronavirus, I was like, we've been avoiding the contagion of caste through social distance. You know, some Indians were very proud how we already do namaste. So we are uh, uh, avoiding the handshake and the hug and the kiss, you know, which can spread viruses like COVID, but some of these practices of saying namaste from a distance are related to uh, avoiding the contagion of caste, not the contagion of disease. Well, caste is a disease, perhaps, yes. So I think uh, for me, that was actually kind of, maybe I should have put in a footnote that, you know, this predates the, the pandemic, but I wanted to show the axes along which that remaking of social life happens. And I think for me, one was neighborhoods, you know, there were people who, who asked for their homes to be shifted because a Muslim was living close to them. Then the other way in which space came into the picture are mercantile, actually it was sometimes unnamed actors pushing low caste um, artisanal communities to the peripheries, the very edges spatially, of temple-based Krishna worship. And these communities actively resisted that, citing customs saying we have been doing this so, you know, why should we be pushed to the peripheries now? And, and, and I have a, another book chapter, which is not in this book, in which I show some of these processes in more detail. And then there was the question of water, which again in an arid zone like Rajasthan uh, and, and particularly Marwar, which, uh, you know, really shades into the desert. Um, this seemed to be a particularly cruel um, axis of caste discrimination, where again, actually merchants seem to play a really, they, they even offer to use their monetary resources to build out a new well or to create, you know, facilitate the separation of their water drawing from the uh, water drawing by low caste communities. And in those petitions, they often describe that they are of jat or, 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 or a sort of elite caste um, and other such terms they use. And that, that is where they cite some of that logic of dharma and prestige that I mentioned for why they want those separations. So I think my goal in this chapter was to show that you know one could argue maybe these kinds of petitions have always been uh you know emerging and and that's a question that that's sort of hard to answer but what to me was interesting was that in these petitions there is a a demand to introduce a change you know that this is not that they are protesting a change they are saying things are such we have been drawing water. On the same side of the pond as these other lowly people now we want something different so this idea of demanding a change to me particularly after spending all the months and months that i spent in the archives was very interesting because usually um the kind of grounds on which people made legal claims in this order was custom it was that we demand x or y action because it it departs from what we usually do and that itself, and there are words for that, you know, sadamand soon, always, read soon, by custom, um, and siraste or something, you know. These are the kinds of, they, these were almost like technical terms, I would say, you know. Uh, uvajabi is another one, Do what is you Know, uh, what is yeah. what is
1: so, mm-hmm.
0: um, so, and which was usually used by the state, the people would normally say, as is customary. So, here there is no mention of custom, it's like this is dharma, this is m- maryada, this is what we want, you know. So, there's something of, novel in that, in that sense, without right. even calling it novel, but there's no, so that I found very uh fascinating, you know. So, so I think in this chapter, it's those segregations of water, space. Uh, temple use um, that I wanted to to highlight. That's the function this chapter plays.
1: Yeah, and and you know the, the novelty of it then allows you to uh, really show what facilitated this kind of uh, shift on the grounds where uh, people who live who have lived side by side in some discomfort and of course um, as we know these were practices that were continuing as you showed the achepe is not a new category um, that that community already existed there was already marginalization there was already discrimin- discrimination but there is still a novelty in the way that uh, discrimination is legalized and then operationalized on the ground by marshalling the power of the state and mercantile community. So I think this uh, takes us to the next chapter where you discuss hierarchy and social order um, so maybe we can you can discuss the same aspect and how it manifests in chapter three.
0: yeah, so I think in um <clears throat> In this chapter, I think I honestly wanted to kind of give a, I think, answer a question that the reader, especially the informed reader of early modern South Asian history, of uh, the history of Hindu religion, perhaps would be asking, what is so new about this Hindu? We know that the term Hindu is used in um, pre-modern records, you know, um, sometimes as such, uh, as you know, I think uh, Cynthia Talbot's work shows this for like, 13th, 14th century Andhra, you know. Um, there is the classic article by Philip uh, Wagner, you know, on the Hindu the Raya Suratran in um, uh, Vijayanagar, you know. So uh, we know Shivaji also used this term. And we know Rajput Chronicles used this term Hindu, you know. So, so there, is, there is knowledge of kind of the self-application of this category Hindu. We know that. So I think for me, this chapter really sought to kind of trace that longer history of, uh, of yeah, there is this history, the, the use of, and the construction of this category is important to what I am showing for 18th century Marwar. But I think for me, what was really um, unique or or, or or different in this chapter is the fact that it is not being used in literary chronicles, in kingly self, like texts meant to be read by elite groups that are, you know, a type of kingly self-fashioning or a dynastic history, or even poetry. Uh, It is not being used in, as it is sometimes in bhakti poetry, Uh, you know, Kabir uses sometimes, um, I think, the term Hindu as well. So so it's being used in um, a way that is distinct from all of these because it is being used in administrative records, in legal orders that are being sent off to district headquarters intervening directly in the administration of life. Right. Uh, of course, there is life outside of the letter of the law. I'm not saying this was a totalizing project and that's it. But even this seems to be kind of a new um uh, you know, facet of the use and deployment of this category Hindu that I wanted to highlight. And the second was the way in which it is set in binary contrast in uh, one particular record um, uh, as as uh, against, you know, the untouchable. Whereas in those other records that have so far been uh, discussed and studied, the implicit other seems to be the Muslim. Although if one looks at descriptions of the Muslim in some of those texts, there is a kind of caste logic as well, uh, in how the otherness of the Muslim is, uh, you know, communicated to readers, uh, to hin- to what we would today call uh, Hindu readers. So I think it was that, you know, both the fact that this is building on those changes, but it is also um, departing from those changes that I wanted uh, to highlight. Um, and yeah, actually, and I think I've maybe forgot to mention that in the Previous chapter on purity is where I also show the real deployment in law of this category called untouchable, uh, right? So I wanted to show that this, the word achieve, how is it used precisely? And interestingly, that it is also used to describe Muslims, um, separately, sometimes as Muslims, right? Like, you know, but sometimes uh, as part of the larger collective of, of, of untouchables, thereby also making the, the claim that the I, the category untouchable, so not just the idea or the practice of untouchability, but the category untouchable existed and that it was deployed in law uh, in pre-colonial South Asia, uh, which I hope, you know, makes clear kind of the limits of this idea of the fluidity of caste before colonialism. It doesn't say it was not fluid, there was, you know, of course there was mobility and there were all kinds of complexities, but there were also points at which this category could be deployed uh, as a tool of oppression that is the category of untouchable
1: yeah and in fact as you showed the mobility that is allowed to some castes is actually defined on the basis of greater exclusion of uh, of other castes especially the acheb or untouchable and artisanal castes right so the mobility that might be available is of a limited kind but available perhaps only to middle caste, like uh, in this instance of marwar the mercantile caste men as you uh, call them mm. i'm also uh, wondering uh, this is a sub question um, that came up from something that you were saying um, that the that muslims are of course i understand how you are uh, uh, deploying uh, the term, and you use the term Turuk, which Turk uh, you know to to refer to the Muslims. But were they defined by caste? Because of course, there's caste system within Muslims. Um, so, do you get a sense of which Muslims? Because of course, as we know, and as you mentioned in the book, at the at the in the highest strata amongst the Rajputs, there is intermarriage sometimes or other kinds of alliances with. Uh, Uh, with the ruling uh, Muslim elite. So when the term Turuk is deployed, uh, which castes amongst the Muslims are being
0: referred to? Do you get a sense of that in the archive or in your analysis? Well, I think that to me it's noteworthy that it is deployed as a blanket term. Unlike some of the so there is this one particular record that really spells out uh, at least in that context what the state means by untouchable uh, or a chain, right and there this turak or the Muslim is classed with very specific caste groups but the turak is actually left unspecified even though within this broad category of turak or musalman or Muslim there were many many castes right from the most from from elite Rajputs to um, artisanal communities, uh, to, uh, you know, kazis and such like, uh, but it's just, it's left um, undefined. So I think to me, that is significant, because I think there is some work that the idea of the Turak as, you know, the in fact, an encompassing category is doing in the constitution of that part or that subset of the untouchable. And so I think my, you know, I don't want to sweep aside sort of the Muslimness of the Muslim. I don't think it was completely subsumed by caste. What I try to say here is that I think it kind of mutually informed the idea of a kind of caste otherness and the kind idea of a Muslim otherness mutually informed this shape category and made it legible and intelligible as to what is an shape and that an shape is that that a Hindu is not. And so this Kind of, I would say, you know, it was both the the Muslim quality and the untouchable quality that that sort of mixed, or the caste logic that mixed together. Um, so yes, of course, there. But you know, in, in 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 historically speaking, yes, this you know they continued. This particular king continued to give patronage to, for example, Sufi shrines. There were many Muslim artisanal castes in Marwar. There are references to. Qazis, you know, in that come into these records as well in particularly Nagor uh, district, which had a history of kind of shared government with the Mughals. Uh, So um, I would say that, uh, you know, in in, on the ground, the picture is a bit complicated. uh, But I think that there aren't also that many elite Muslims in this region, from what I can understand. You know, I know there are certain castes among Rajputs particularly the Kyam Khanis, but they're on the edges of Marwar. So they are there, but they're not, I don't get an organic sense of their presence in this state from these records. And going back to your point on mobility, and that is one of the points I was also trying to make is there's a lot of literature on like early early modern circulations, early modern... Flows which I think is very important, but I think that was another kind of limit that I want, wanted to point at is that those circulations and flows, um, that kind of made this large, you know, early modern Eurasian or Euro- Europe, Asia, Africa kind of space, that they were accompanied by also forms of oppression, but also new forms of oppression or new intensifications of oppression that were, in fact, part of that same increased mobility for some. That the increased mobility for some could become a cause of the increased immobility of others.
1: That, that's really well put. I think that's uh, that's the sense I got from the book, and it com- comes across very clearly. Um, so in chapter four, I think the, the sense of othering, you really get a sense of how that is um, happening in social and cultural life. Um, the making of a vegetarian body politic, which was a fascinating phrase. And the Marwar state uh, turning uh, moral police uh, against the dietary practices of its subjects and and, and, uh, and attacking the daily life of subjects to some degree, if that's fair to say. So the moral policing of the lives, of the private lives of the subject is fascinating. And of course, anyone who reads this chapter Will, uh, it's it's hard not to notice the parallels with the current scenario. Um, so I can only imagine that when you were writing this, this was something that must have been at the back of your mind. So uh, even if you if you wish to reflect on the contemporary politics, I have I can ask you again about that later. But um, if I would love to hear more
0: about this idea of a vegetarian body politic. Mm-hmm. 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 So actually, you know, chapters four and five, maybe we can even discuss them together, even though chapter five goes into the self, they really work as a, you know, a kind of a twin, a twin kind of chapter, which is that these, these two chapters lay out this sort of front, this, uh, that the Marwar kingdom under the rule of Vijay Singh opened up, which was this war against hurting non-human beings. And uh, so, there's, uh, so there are these very long and idealistic decrees which lay out all the categories of violence towards non-human beings that should be put an end to. I won't go into the details about that. But on the ground, it's not just this idealistic thing like don't hurt a moth, don't hurt a uh, scorpion that really animates the political manifestations of these decrees. It is on the ground uh, against those who eat meat. Of those who hunt which can also be in order to eat meat but of course hunting is its own pursuit. So this is, is really the the axis it takes and it is um, you know Muslims uh, and uh, these Thoris and Babris which I said were under the British classed as criminal tribes and are today scheduled tribes but who are explicitly listed among the untouchable in the orders of this state um, uh, and uh, who else butchers most of whom are uh, Muslim uh, who are singled out for specific punishment now uh, and almost preemptively that not that these people are not following our orders but that these people will not follow our orders so they should be banished or they should be dispossessed if they own goats herds of goats should be confiscated and transferred to vegetarian castes such as the Jats uh, and. Uh, You know, it is, uh, uh, and when they are individually caught, they face much harsher punishment than others who are often let off with fines or who challenge any allegation of animal slaughter by saying we never did it. It can never really be proven by the state. So that's kind of what I map out is this on the ground, like I have this large stack of transcriptions. And this was really one of the major surprises that I had in my archival research was this thing called Jeev Hansya. What is this Jeev Hansya, Jeev Hansya? And before you knew, I mean, it was just the scale of this campaign really surprised me as to what a pre-modern, pre-colonial polity could do uh, and was invested in doing in uh, in South Asia. So in terms of the contemporary relevance of this project, uh, of this aspect of the project, you know, I did this archival research in 2012, 2011 to 12. And this was, yes, there was a history of kind of the institutional targeting of lower caste and particularly Muslims in things like expulsion from middle-class apartment complexes. Gujarat had some of a history of kind of the state getting involved in some of this. But the way it took off at an all-India level after 2014, that was not something I I saw coming, obviously, when I was doing my archival research. At that point, I was like, wow, what a weird chapter in in South Asian history, you know. That's really what I was thinking as I was amassing these these records. But um, as I was writing... These processes certainly were underway. So it was very much um, an eerie feeling. But I think I was careful or I wanted to be careful to really remain true to the sources, you know, because um, I I felt that as a historian, it is my training to um, not be kind of, you know, sensationalist or uh, overly you know, trying to say that this moment in, you know, 1780 defines where we are today, you know, kind of thing. So really, I think I genuinely wanted to just stay close to the sources and lay out the dynamic as I saw it playing out to the best of my ability without trying to overread today's developments into the past. So, however, the as you say, the echoes are really quite eerie, you know. And so I think for me, the epilogue did that work where I wanted to trace not parallels, but connections. So how over time through the colonial period, some of the dynamics we see have brought us to where we are at today. So kind of a genealogical connection with that 18th century moment is how I tried to address that and how ways in which, uh, you know, attitudes of uh, disgust uh, that, you know, for example, Joe Lee has shown uh, do inform um, you know, the, the operation of caste and, you know, the work of Parvis Qasem Fachandi on Gujarat in the 2002 riots also shows the role that the stigmatization of meat eating of animal slaughter, kind of the ethical condemnation of Muslims for that, played a role in justifying violence against them. So it's a genealogical history I trace, but genuinely in my research, my goal was to show what I saw. Um mm-hmm.
1: And yes, I mean, you know uh, anyone who reads now will of course see that parallel, but as you were saying, uh, that was uh, and and you know anyone who reads will see how um, truth to the archive the truth of the archive that you saw you reproduce that uh, without uh, without taking leaps of uh, you know licenses and leaps uh, and that I am sure is very appreciated. Um, And and in Chapter 5, which you, of course, discussed a little bit, this idea of, which which is titled non-harm, which sounds like such an apparently harmless and pious virtue, but that gets operationalized and against whom, as you just discussed. So maybe we can move on to Chapter 6, which is on austerity, which is really, I think, you bring home the... Uh, Vallaba and Jain ethics of austerity and how that is practiced against the self Uh, because so far of course it's the other who remains the target of defining the self but now the self itself is increasingly policed disciplined and punished Uh, though again here the punishment is differential uh, as you show us so
0: uh, yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so I think uh, you know both in the chapter I think is it 5 and 6 and and 7 so the the self section of the book the second part of the book in that i think yes i turn very much to how this remaking of kind of the elite caste identity that the merchants were leading was not just about identifying what the hindu was not or what the non elite was that was not the limit. It was also a remaking of the self in consonance with those very virtues that were being uh, cited, that kind of fueled uh, this rise to regional um, you know, preeminence or caste uh, preeminence that the merchants were seeking. So, you know, you had to walk the talk. Um, and so... I think, of course, some of this is also an older process, you know, the kind of um, adherence to the ethics of uh, bodily simplicity, bodily austerity, not indulging the senses too much, um, you know, which extends also into chastity. So maybe we can also bring in the last uh, chapter of the book, you know, where there is this sense of uh, uh, you know, it's a deeper, it's a deeper history within these communities. It's not only linked to kind of asserting caste dominance, you know, among mercantile cultures, both Vaishnav and Jain, there is this emphasis of a shared culture uh, of, of all of this, where the excess of, you know, especially accumulated wealth is to be manifested in uh, rituals of the community, festivals, uh, Uh, you know, wedding feasts, uh, these, uh, you know, charity, these are the sites where you are to really expend that wealth you have accumulated, not spend it lavishly on your own self. So, uh, wealth aside, I think I try to show how the other side of sort of we- how, how you do or don't, uh, you know, expend wealth is um, how your relation to your sensory self, right? And that's where, again, I was very surprised that these orders are also prohibited um, the brewing of alcohol because no violence was involved there, you know, uh, orders that prohibited Uh, gambling, uh, which are actually part of mercantile uh, uh, which is part of mercantile cultures the work of Ritu Birla has really shown how the kind of history that has histories of speculation in the late 19th century. Um, So gambling, alcohol, um, and also kind of a restraint on the sexual activity of mercantile caste women uh, is another axis along which the remaking of this Hindu self uh, plays out. And there I I highlight that, um, you know, uh, once again, even though the orders are from the mouth of the state, so to speak, but the state is, and I try to show where possible that the state consists precisely of these elite caste men themselves, not the Rajput king, not Rajput officers, uh, that there is a kind of buying into whatever directive may or may not have come from the king himself there is kind of a buying into any kind of wide imposition uh, of these things on the ground that cannot be attributed only to kind of a top-down kingly effort but secondly the caste communities of these mercantile groups and also the brahmin groups are also very active in imposing the ethic upon their own fellows so it's not just the state we can see that their own non-state localized caste uh, bodies uh, which are called the nyat in this area, also play like use fines of expulsion, humiliation, uh, you know, bo- boycott as tools through which they uh, uh, encourage members of their caste to follow these expectations of vegetarianism, non- non-harm, non-violence towards living beings, uh, you know, uh, bodily austerity, um, chastity and such like. And, uh, and I argue that it's not just a kind of inherited ethic, but it as others have shown, this is important to maintaining a reputation of respectability, which in turn is connected to creditworthiness uh, among mercantile cultures um, that you know Douglas Haynes, for example, has shown for um, working out of later sources in in Gujarat. So that's um, the intervention there.
1: Yeah, and women of course also fall, fall uh, victim to this moral regime and the extension of the moral regime, of course, uh, on women's bodies at all times is well established. But here you show a specific case where abortion, which activates that issue of harm uh, to the fetus or the, to the baby, that uh, triggers off some of these anxieties. But then that becomes, a, um, you know, yeah, a, a, I don't want to anticipate the argument entirely, but that uh, that's a fascinating chapter. And maybe you want to talk a little bit about, again, uh, women appearing in the archive in these ways.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the the references to abortion were one of those again one of those moments for me where I was like oh my goodness like this is such um you know you know hotly debated issue in in America but growing up in India we never heard much of an investment in you know abortion as a moral issue so to see such a sort of hardline position in this 18th century kingdom on abortion and again not just a position but an actual application of the position through you know the state's uh, administrative machinery surveillance networks, neighbors informing on each other, which they also did in the case of meat-eating. You know, that was again a huge surprise to me. Subsequently, you know, I have made this into its own article because I felt I couldn't do justice to what I was finding about um, histories of sexual deviance, uh, of um, uh, abortion in Marwar. I couldn't do justice to it it in the book, so I have made it its own um, separate article. But in doing more research, I found that there are similar histories also in the uh, Peshwa Deccan in the 18th century and also in the neighboring uh, kingdom of Jaipur in the 18th century. So I think there's this interesting like line of potential further inquiry there. Like there is a much greater policing of women's bodies that is being unleashed in the 18th century in certain parts of post-Mughal South Asia. Uh, that is fascinating. And to me, what really stood out once I actually looked carefully at the cases I gathered is that they're all or most of them are merchant caste or Brahmin women. So there's no concern with abortion done or not done by by artisanal women, peasant women. But there I one possibility is that they were allowed remarriage. And so maybe if you did get pregnant or wedlock, it was something that could get concealed because you rarely remained unmarried during your reproductive years, perhaps. Uh, So still, you know, that there is not a concern with policing or the fact that, yes, this regime of widowhood led to this outcome, which then led to greater policing, I think uh, was a really fascinating chapter. And I think to my mind, the fact that it's these women only that are being policed linked to this emphasis on chastity uh, and kind of a remaking of the self. To better and more powerfully assert a claim to be among the region's elite.
1: And in, interestingly, read right between the lines, we also see a history of transgression and deviance. Uh, deviant women, transgressive women, very bold men and women who are trying to carry on with their lives and suddenly find themselves at the receiving end of this punitive uh, regime. And it's. Uh, you know, the, the the moral capital that is being built up uh, in nexus with financial capital of the mercantile caste and the sovereign power of the state. So thank you so much. This has been such a fascinating discussion. Before I uh, let you go, I'm uh, curious to hear about uh, what, are, what are you working on now? What are you thinking about writing uh, and
0: researching next? Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, So now I'm really headed into the, um, you know, the interface or the kind of dynamic between the practice of magic broadly, of course, I know that's a complicated category, but magic and uh, the state. Uh, so I found in doing research for this book references to the persecution of women for the practice of witchcraft. The word in Marwad is Dhakan. It's also used in Gujarat, this word. And there I have since learned there are many kinds of witches also. But this word Dakar is used uh, in in these records. And I think that stayed with me. And I I always knew that I want to do more with this. And so I think that's really what that's become the anchor. But I think I have a broader question that I'm interested in. What are the other kinds of sort of, what can I say, unofficial magic, you know, that are being used? Not that are, you know, so not, um, you know, so tantra, but like folk tantra, the Persianate, Islamicate sciences, uh, you know, and kind of the mixed milieu of how they're deployed on the ground, uh, mixed in with each other. It's that whole world that really fascinates me. But I'm going to be tracing the history of this dynamic into the colonial era. So how do things change once instead of the pre-colonial state, you now have a colonial state. Um, So, you know, that's where I'm headed. I've sort of, you know, a chapter in the sense of the framing. And let's see.
1: Yeah, that that sounds fascinating, and that's going to, uh, I'm sure, produce uh, that that effort is going to produce another wonderful book. Livia, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us about your research, your book, your future project, and this has been an absolutely wonderful con- uh, conversation. And uh, congratulations once again on the publication of this very significant work of. Uh, social and cultural history of early modern uh, pre-colonial South Asia. Uh, To our audience, thank you for listening to this episode of New Books in South Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.